Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. Before we get into this, I have a couple announcements to make. Number one, I'm sure you guys have noticed that I've had a pretty haphazard release schedule the past, oh, two months or so. And I am finally, if you're not following me on social media, ready to tell you guys why that is. Mrs. Disastrous History and I are expecting our third child. Uh, We just found out not that long ago. So it's been kind of hectic because we've had several miscarriages, which I've talked about on social media a couple times. But we've had several miscarriages, so we've had lots of doctor visits and blood draws and just the whole nine yards. But we did get to see the ultrasound uh, last week. Baby is right where she's supposed to be. It is a girl. Uh, right, baby is right where she's supposed to be. Um, heartbeat is good. Everything is good. So that's announcement number one. Announcement number two is, unfortunately, podcasting is not free, and I have a lot of costs that go into the research and hosting the podcast and all that kind of stuff. So I started a Patreon, 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 and um, there are different levels. There's a lowest level, which is you get the episodes early, day early. Um, there's a second level, which is Basically, you get the episodes the day early, and then you get some additional episodes that I put out. And then there's a third level that's, you get all the episodes early, you get the additional episodes that I put out, so they're like disastrous lives, and me talking about disaster movies and stuff like that. And then also a disastrous history sticker. And if you sign up now for the next two weeks at any level, you will get the disastrous history sticker. So... That's a whole lot of opening that I didn't really want to have to do, but got to get the announcements out there. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. So this week, we're going to cover a world-spanning disaster that led to some insane social and political upheavals. This is actually a series of disasters over basically an entire year. So some of you may know that from around 1500 to around 1850 or so, there was a time period known as the Little Ice Age. It was in the North Atlantic-ish area, and this time period was marked by constant wars, constant famine, and terrible, absolutely unpredictable harvests. This time period led to some of the biggest upheavals in human history. The English Revolution, the American Revolution, the French Revolution Round 1, the French Revolution Round 2, the French Revolution 1832 edition, and the French Revolution in France. The English Revolution wasn't super tied to the Little Ice Age, but I like to include it because it absolutely characterizes the upheaval of the time. Same with what should really be considered the first actual world war, the Seven Years' War. For those who were in the United States and had a terrible history teacher who was basically just a football coach but needed a cover as actually being a, you know, employee of the school, that's the French and Indian War, precursor to the American Revolution. During this time, the average temperature around the world fell almost two full degrees Celsius during this time. It was cold, and you'll note that the year without a summer takes place during this little ice age. So, on top of it, our, top of what we're going to talk about with the year without a summer, it was already slightly more colder than normal during this time. So, if the area was already slightly more cold, what makes this one different than the rest of, like, what makes 1816 different than the rest of that time period? Because that's 350 years of already colder temperatures. What makes 1816 so special? Well, this year was pretty much colder than all the others and had a specific cause, or causes, depending on your view. 
And it wasn't the coldest year total throughout that entire time, but it was the most consistently cold. So it was, like, there was colder years, but they weren't, like, consistently cold. Like, the winters were colder, but the summers were still warm. This one was just flat-out cold basically the entire year. So what could happen that could possibly have that big of a global impact on weather in such a short amount of time? If you guessed massive volcanic eruption, among some other things, then you win this week's prize of being correct. What volcanic eruption was that? Well, for that we need to head down to Indonesia and the eruption of Mount Tambora on April 5th, 1815. As we've talked about in previous volcanic episodes, a volcanic eruption is rarely ever a single eruption. It is always a sequence of events, sometimes categorized by a single huge eruption, but usually surrounded by tens if not hundreds of smaller eruptions. And Mount Tambora is no different. Located on the island of Sumbawa in Indonesia, then the Dutch East Indies, it is an imposing sight. From above, it looks exactly like you would expect a volcano to look like. Single cone shape with the wide mouth for the erupting volcano at the top. It is a volcano we all made when we were kids. The eruption really began sometime in 1812, give or take. Before that, it was believed the volcano was dormant, but it began to rumble and shake and emit a dark cloud sometime in 1812. This happened for about three years before that fateful April in 1815. Now, there aren't a ton of super good sources for this eruption. Basically, they all copy off of each other from charts and uh, notes from British captains and soldiers and stuff like that who were stationed in the Dutch East Indies at the time. Basically, all the sources go like this. There was a large amount of rumbles and a black cloud above the volcano for three straight years. That all changed on April 5th, 1815. That evening, there were multiple loud cracks of detonations, over and over and over again. On neighboring islands, several troops had formed up and were ready to march into whatever battle was happening, but the ash that was falling from the sky soon after let them know that no, it wasn't a war, it was a volcanic eruption. Ash had begun to fall, with detonation noises becoming fewer and farther in between that evening. This lasted until about 7 p.m. on April 10, 1815. Around that time, three massive columns of flame shot out of the crater high into the air, and the whole side of the volcano became a flowing waterfall of liquid fire. Ash began to fall on the town of Sangar, about 18 miles away, by 9 p.m. By 10 to 11 p.m., super strong winds began to whip through Sangar, uprooting trees and collapsing houses that weren't sturdy. Superheated pyroclastic flows crashed into the village of Tambora near the summit of Mount Tambora. The noise of the eruption was heard as far away as 1,600 miles. For two days, the, the sky was dark around Tambora because of how much ash was spewed up into the atmosphere. The eruption hit the volcanic explosivity index at a 7. The scale only goes up to 8. That means about 150 cubic kilometers of material was ejected into the atmosphere from this one volcanic eruption. It is by far the largest eruption in recorded history. Only the Mazama eruption, Long Valley Caldera eruption, and the Yellowstone eruption between 7,700 years and 700,000 years ago were larger, but obviously there are no written records of those eruptions. So that makes the Mount Tambora eruption the biggest in recorded history that was actually written about.
the eruption column alone was over 26 miles high. In the immediate aftermath of the eruption, basically all vegetation and trees were destroyed on the island. The sources for number of deaths vary significantly, but the general agreement is that about 10,000 people died in the immediate pyroclastic flows coming from the volcano. But the deaths didn't stop there. Water sources became contaminated, food crops were destroyed by falling ash, any animals around were killed by the pyroclastic flows, that means all the livestock and everything like that. Famine erupted and killed nearly 100,000 people on Sumbawa in the close-by island of Lombok. It was truly catastrophic. But that's only the beginning. The eruption sent, and this is a technical term, a metric buttload of material into the atmosphere. A huge chunk of that was sulfuric acid, ash, and dust. The larger particles obviously were able to fall out of the atmosphere pretty rapidly after the eruption and blanketed the area around Mount Tambora. There were reports of ash flues, giant islands of ash, in the ocean around Tambora that ships had to push through to get anywhere like it was ice. But there was a lot of material that became trapped in the atmosphere and then spread around the world through the stratosphere. This various material being trapped in the stratosphere level of the atmosphere began to reflect light back away from the Earth and caused a global cooling. You may know it as the more common name, volcanic winter. And it caused some wild problems around the world, and also some spectacular sunsets, but that's besides the point. There is another possible cause, at least contributing cause, to the major global cooling that happened in 1816, a phenomenon known as the Dalton Minimum. The Dalton Minimum was an event from around 1790 to about 1830. This was a period of low sunspot count, which indicates lower solar activity, which may have helped to increase the global cooling at the time. So, it helped to increase global cooling, so decrease the actual temperature. There is a small, statistically significant comparison of weak sunspot activity and an increase of volcanic activity. So, it's possible that the low sunspot activity helped contribute to the eruption that was Mount Tambora, but it's not for certain, it's just maybe slightly statistically significant. Just a thing to remember. In order to fully give context to this entire event, I'm going to go continent by continent that had effects during the year of 1816. Not every continent had regular occurrences that were written down that were weird enough to make it into history where people would notice, notice them. So I'll provide context to what was happening at the time of 1816 and then what happened in the areas. It is a lot. We're going to start with Asia. And before I get into this, again, I am a Midwestern dude. I have an accent, kind of. I will do my absolute best to pronounce things correctly, but there's a good chance I get it wrong and I'm sorry. Also, I'd like to thank Chris from the History of China podcast because he did help me with some of the Chinese pronunciations. Hopefully, I don't butcher them after he was kind enough to tell me how to pronounce these things. So, without further ado, obviously, Indonesia was immediately impacted by the eruption with the actual pyroclastic flows and heavier asphalt and all that. It also suffered from massive famines and disease outbreaks because of contaminated water and destroyed food crops. But it stretched way past that. So let's get into China. So Chinese records at this time, outside of the main areas that were important, are sparse. 
And because oftentimes the worst effects of the disasters happen to the poorest and the most rural parts of our countries, sometimes we don't have good records, and that's kind of what happens here. So at the time of the Mount Tambor eruption, the Qing dynasty was in power and had been since about 1616. The impact of the Mount Tambor eruption was pronounced all over China, but none more so than Yunnan province. Yunnan province was in South China, bordering what is now Vietnam, Myanmar, and Laos. The crop failure started in 1815 in Yunnan. It was closest to the eruption of Mount Tambora, so it didn't take that long for the effects to get there. And it just got worse from there. Over the summer of 1816, there was snow in June and July. Average temperatures in Yunnan were estimated to be between 2 to 3 degrees Celsius colder than normal. That doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're trying to grow crops, it is in fact a lot because anyone who has tried to grow plants knows that they are extremely fickle. This led to massive widespread famine throughout the area. There are contemporary reports of people in the region eating white clay to try and stave off even the slightest bit of hunger. There are no reports of the official death toll, but it was likely well into the thousands to tens of thousands to maybe even hundreds of thousands of people. There were even rumors of mothers killing their children out of mercy or selling them off to get food. I don't see, haven't seen any official recording of this, but there are rumors in numerous academic sources. In an interesting twist, after the famine eventually passed in 1817, the people realized that trying to grow only food wasn't working so well and they weren't making very much money. So they began to grow the much less fickle cash crop of opium starting what the CIA dubbed the Golden Triangle of Opium between China, Laos, Myanmar, and Vietnam. Over in Taiwan, which you'll note is usually tropical, they received snowfall. Seriously, the coldest average temperature in a year there is 57 degrees Fahrenheit, in the dead of winter, as a low. The lowest average high temperature is 66 degrees Fahrenheit, in the dead of winter. That is it. It's a crazy swing for it to snow in Taiwan. And then let's head over to India. And this is probably one of the worst and longest term possible effects of the Tambora eruption. So, Mount Tambora spewed all that ash and debris and gases into the atmosphere, right? Well, that disrupted the Indian monsoon season. It pushed it back several months. This caused the normal wet season to be bone dry, which then caused the normal dry season to be soaking wet. So with the wet season being dry and the dry season being wet, that first caused famine. And then when nothing grew because it had no water, then all the water came and caused massive flooding because nothing hates you like nature hates you. But that's not the only terrible thing it most likely did. You see, cholera had always been endemic to India around the Ganges River. That means, like, directly around the Ganges River. There had been outbreaks before, sure, but they were always essentially contained to, basically, India. That all changed in early 1817 when an epidemic broke out in the town of Jasore in India. I hope I pronounced that correctly. There, a new strain of cholera called Asiatic cholera started. This pandemic stretched as far as the Caspian Sea 
and far up into China and down into Indonesia before receding in 1824. The estimated death toll during this pandemic is probably close to 2 million people. For those unaware, cholera primarily spreads through water and food contaminated with the bacterium Vibrio cholerae. Often, it will start in an area where there is high consumption of seafood. Once it infects a person, their diarrhea then can go on to affect other water supplies and so on and so forth. Now, there hasn't been an official determination that the Mount Tambora eruption in the year without a summer directly led to this outbreak, but the context of crop failures, which means weakened immune systems combined with massive floods at abnormal times, means there's a ton of water everywhere. Floods are generally contaminated with God knows what at the best of times, and because you can't grow any food on land, it's likely that a lot of people in India were looking to seafood to sustain themselves on top of what they already were doing. So basically, you have the Mount Tambora eruption, which pushes the monsoon season back to the dry season. You don't have food available during the monsoon season, so you have to look to the ocean where you get that Asiatic cholera. It infects people on land. Their diarrhea spreads to the water supply. The dry season becomes what is the monsoon season at that point, so you get massive floods everywhere that are going to become contaminated with the water supplies that are already contaminated from those with cholera. Those floods contaminated with cholera spread all over the place, and then you have an epidemic, and then it continues to spread because people were traveling in and out of India at the time, and then it turns into a pandemic. This particular strain of cholera would end up causing seven pandemics, killing a total of, well, a lot. There's no real good number for how many people died of cholera during the pandemics of cholera throughout the uh, 19th century and into the 20th century, but it's probably a lot. It, it's, a, it's a really big number. There would also be famines and cold spurts in Japan and some other areas in Asia, but nothing with the, the catastrophic effects that happened in India and Indonesia and southern China. So with that, we're going to travel on to Europe. Now, Europe at the time of the Mount Tambora eruption was already in a state of, to put it lightly, absolute chaos. Basically, from 1792 to late 1815, Europe had been at war. Specifically, Europe had been at war with France. This time period is known as a whole bunch of different things to a whole bunch of different people. There's, it's known as the Coalition Wars, it's known as the French Revolutionary Wars, then the Napoleonic Wars. Basically, it's got a lot of names. I'm going to call the whole time period the Coalition Wars because to me it makes the most sense, as you're about to find out. This time period was known as the Coalition Wars because there were several coalitions of various different countries who were basically all fighting France and, and ever randomized selection of allies that France had on their side. There are seven coalition wars. The War of the First Coalition from 1792 to 1797 was basically about France wanting to bring liberty and freedom to Europe regardless of whether or not they wanted it from under the tyranny of monarchy, and then the other European monarchies wanted to take a big old slice of France that had just become a republic. This is the war where our friend Napoleon Bonaparte busts onto the scene, generally smacking the Austrians around, and it ended with France seizing control of Belgium, much to their chagrin, and a lot of Italy, much more to their chagrin. And then we have the War of the Second Coalition from 1798 to 1802, which was basically the same goal as the first, 
stop the French Republic from being Republic, and then carve France up like it was Poland. It was during the War of the Second Coalition that Napoleon overthrew the directory that was controlling the French Republic with the coup of 18 Brumaire and made it the French consulate. It was also during this time that Napoleon sent the Leclerc expedition to Haiti to recapture the island and reinstate slavery after it had been outlawed empire-wide, just to remind you that Napoleon was, and always will be, excuse my French, an asshole. It was after the Second Coalition that everyone in Europe was seemingly at war with France at varying times. To be more specific, Europe was at war with the Bonaparte family. You see, old Napoleon Bonaparte decided he no longer hated being French, he was from Corsica and was mighty chapped when the island became owned by France, and decided that he wanted to bring his newfound Frenchness to, well, all of Europe. This was generally looked upon most unfavorably, and so we have the War of the Third Coalition, the War of the Fourth Coalition, the War of the Fifth Coalition, the War of the Sixth Coalition, the Peninsular War, and the War of the Seventh Coalition. It was during the uh, uh, Fifth Coalition that Napoleon got it in his head to invade Russia, leading to one of the best, if I can't have it, no one cans in history. Napoleon was marching on Moscow. He fought a battle to a draw outside Moscow, but the Russians retreated again. Before evacuating the city, the governor, Fyodor Rostopchin, ordered the city burnt to the ground. So they sure did. Napoleon entered the city, found it burnt to the ground, with absolutely zero supplies left, realized that winter was coming, so he made the decision to retreat back the way they came after being blocked by a Russian army. Unfortunately, the way they came had been absolutely destroyed by the Russian army before falling back to Moscow. So basically, the Russian army was retreating from the French army and was basically destroying anything they could get their hands on on their way back towards Moscow. So when France had to go back towards France to get out of Russia before winter got there, and, uh, well, it there was no supplies, and then the... Uh, the old foe of everyone not Russian arrived, Old Man Winter, and basically decimated the French army that had been essentially undefeated in almost all of these wars for Napoleon. And then two years and several more defeats after his disastrous trip into Russia, Napoleon abdicated the throne in 1814 and was exiled to the island of Elba. Elba is a little island about six miles from the Italian shoreline, and, well, Napoleon promptly escaped his exile and then started the War of the Seventh Coalition in a bid to get power back. This little war lasted for 100 days, known to history as the Hundred Days, not super good at naming things. He would end up losing the Battle of Waterloo in June of 1815 to the Duke of Wellington. Napoleon then abdicated again, and he would be exiled to the island of St. Helena because they were absolutely done with Napoleon doing Napoleon things, and putting him on an island 1,200 miles away from the east coast of Africa seemed a bit harder to escape from than an island six miles from the coast of Italy. They learned their lesson. So, that was a super long-winded way of telling you that mainland Europe was in an absolutely sorry state by 1815. The last battle of the coalition wars was basically two months after the eruption of Mount Tambora. War is notoriously bad for crops and civilian populations, especially basically eight of them in a row for a quarter century. So you've already got people in a bad way, but 1816 would only get worse. 
You remember me mentioning the Dalton minimum earlier, when there were significantly less sunspots on the surface of the sun than normal? Well, what happened was, those sunspots were, there were less of them, but they tended to be bigger. So, combined with the already atmospheric dust in the air from the Mount Tambora explosion, decreased the amount of light getting through to the ground. So when people looked at the sun, which you should never do, don't look directly in the sun, they could actually see the sunspots with unaided eyesight, basically. They could look up and they could see the sunspots that were these dark, growing spots on the sun. This obviously did not sit well with the people that could see these sunspots, where it appeared that the sun was going out, like was burning out. And so it led to some pretty wild theories combined with the already super wet, super cold, super depressing spring and summer they were having. So there's one major prediction that I want to talk about, and that's the Bologna prophecy. Now there's a decent chance that the Bologna prophecy was completely made up by the media and didn't actually happen, but I'm going to tell you about it because it's moderately interesting. It was allegedly by an anonymous Italian astronomer who predicted the sun would literally burn out on July 18th, 1816. Like, it, the sunspots would cover the entire sun and it would burn completely out. And this theory took off throughout Europe. I mean, there, was, there were news reports in France, news reports in England, news reports in Ireland, all throughout Italy, Germany. People were absolutely terrified that the sun was going to burn out on July 18th at 1816, which fit with what was going on, because there were wild, wild weather patterns all over Europe at this time. And you've got to think, like, people are unable to find food basically anywhere. It's constantly raining. It's constantly cold in the middle of July when it should be hot. They don't know what's happening. They can see these giant spots on the sun that seem to cover the entire sun, and it's colder. And the sky has got this weird red hue basically the entire time. There are massive storms. There's massive floods. Like, what else are they going to believe? That would seem like the end of the world when it's cold, when it's supposed to be hot, when it's absolutely raining for weeks on end with no stopping. That You can't really blame them for trying to come up with a reason as to why this was happening and believing that the world was ending. It kind of makes sense. But the Bologna prophecy wasn't the only one. There was a doctor in France that claimed the weather was being influenced by the death of the moon and the sickness of the sun. All of this hit as things were getting to basically be their worst. Food shortages were rampant throughout all of Europe. It was constantly raining. It was constantly chilly. The people of Europe, war-weary and hungry, became even more hungry. And then you have to think, all those armies that were constantly marching around Europe for the past 25 years were suddenly out of jobs and also starving. There weren't any more wars. Everyone was focused on, you know, eating. But they still needed to be fed. A lot of them were far from home. Like, they lost their one source of income, their one source of food, the one way they could take care of their families. Riots broke out across the European continent constantly, often outside bakeries and granaries and stuff like that. A lot of people didn't realize it was the crops that were failing. They thought it was the rich people hogging all the food for themselves, which, I mean, technically would kind of be the truth. If you had money at this time, you certainly weren't going hungry. 
you just had to deal with the gloomy weather, not whether or not you would be able to feed your toddlers. And then there were reports of strange weather all over Europe. In Hungary, they had a blizzard in January that dropped snow that was not white, but brown. Similar occurrence happened in Italy, with that snow being red and falling through a huge chunk of the year. So not just winter, all throughout the year they had snow. In Copenhagen, they had absolutely no strawberry crop, which is just a fantastic thing to notice, but also terrible, and had literally never happened in anyone's memory. The River Main in Germany swelled high enough to actually get into the city of Frankfurt. Dry weather would hold in Ireland for a couple weeks, but then it would suddenly storm nonstop for a week straight, destroying all the crops. And then the typhus started. Tens of thousands of people died of typhus from 1816 to 1819 in Ireland alone. In France, it was more of the same. Terrible weather meant poor harvests. Poor harvests meant rising prices. Rising prices meant starvation. Starvation meant riots. Riots meant military brought in to stop the riots, and so that meant more riots. Sometimes the military would flat out refuse to break up the protests. I'm sure many of them had the same thoughts about what was happening, and they also couldn't afford food. It didn't help that France had already learned what happened with revolutions in the capital of Paris in the years before, when people were displeased. So King Louis XVIII, France was real confused for a while after the revolutions and counter-revolutions and revolutions and all that. There were multiple reinstated monarchies in France, and then the Empire, and then more monarchies, and then the Re-Empire, and then the Re-Re-Re-Re-Republic. Anyway, Louis XVIII decided to send all of the grain he could to Paris. This did not sit well with the people, you know, immediately outside Paris, so the deliveries were regularly raided. Similar events played out across Europe. Bread and food riots were everywhere. It was a terrible time. But there was some... I guess good, that came out of the event in Europe. Because of the grain shortage, which also impacted animals, because if there's no food for people, there's definitely no food for animals, horses were few and far between. This meant people needed a new mode of transportation. There has been some evidence that the man who more or less invented the bicycle, Baron Carl Vandre, came up with the idea for the bicycle because of the lack of horses and because people needed a way to get around since, you know, oat harvest was terrible and a terrible oat harvest meant starving horses, and starving horses meant dead horses. So, Further, Mary Shelley famously wrote Frankenstein during a competition with her future husband, Percy Shelley, and Lord Byron, the famous poet, on who could write the most frightening horror story while trapped inside by storms while vacationing in Geneva. She would win with Frankenstein. In an interesting side note there, Lord Byron's personal physician, John Polidori, also traveled with them and wrote a story about an attractive, rich aristocrat who murders young women and drinks their blood after seducing them. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's thought to be the precursor to Dracula. One of the big things you can see is paintings from that time period all have spectacular red sunsets. This is from the sun glinting off the ash in the atmosphere. And finally, let's head to North America. In North America, it wasn't the rain, or lack thereof, that killed crops and led to famine. It was pure, unabashed cold. The year of 1816 was called, at least in North America, 1800 and froze to death. All over New England are reports of being absolutely cold all summer. There was frost in July on numerous days. Rivers and lakes were partially frozen all the way down to northeast Pennsylvania. A blizzard hit Vermont in July. 
In Connecticut, Reverend Thomas Robbins reported that on August 22nd, there was frost on the ground. On August 24th, it was hot again. The next day, it briefly rained. And then on August 28th, there was frost again. If you're keeping track at home, that is a wild swing from basically freezing to what he reported is about 80 degrees to rain to frozen again. That is horrible on any crop you can try and grow anywhere, let alone in the Northeast where growing crops in the first place is extremely difficult. One clockmaker in Connecticut reported that his wife brought in the clothes that she had left outside to dry overnight, and they were frozen solid. The date of that incident? June 10th. There was a blizzard over New England that dropped 18 inches of snow. On June 7th and 8th, rumors of people in Boston having to resort to eating pigeons and raccoons because there was no other food. Farmers couldn't plant their crops in the ground until the 4th of July, not because of rain, but because the ground was too frozen until then. Basically, if you were a farmer in New England during the summer of 1816, you didn't have any crops for that year. If you lived in New England, finding food was ridiculously difficult. It didn't help that the War of 1812 had literally just ended. Things were still screwed up with supplies from that war, let alone not having any crops for basically an entire summer. There were reports of birds freezing in the sky and falling to the ground dead. Cows froze to death in the field. Sheeps froze to death in the field. Pigs froze to death in their pens. It was ridiculously cold in the middle of what should be a relatively hot time. All this cold led to famine, death, and disease throughout the area. Maryland received some of that red snow that Italy got. It was generally just a confusing and frustrating time period for everyone. Imagine going to bed thinking that, hey, we're going to have some nice weather the next day because, you know, it's June or July, and being cooped up all winter because it was already a cold winter. Like, the winter of 1816, or the winter from 1815 to 1816 was brutally cold as it was. So, Imagine being like a teenager, like 13 or 14, being like, hey, we're finally going to be able to get out, go swim in the swimming hole, do whatever, have some fun after being cooped up and suffering all winter long, only to have snow in July. That would suck. It would be de absolutely demoralizing, especially having to have dealt with wartime for the past, you know, four years before that. One woman in Massachusetts, Sarah Snell Brandt, wrote in her diary at one point the simple phrase that entirely sums up the weather around the world. Weather backward. One of the more interesting side effects of the year without a summer is it may have induced Maine to finally decide to break away from Massachusetts. Maine suffered horribly during the summer of 1816. 50-plus degree temperature swings, 9 inches of snow in June, cold, biting winds, frost all the way until August, Crazy things like that. The calls to break away from Massachusetts loudened, and by December 1817, they were openly discussing it. Maine would officially gain statehood as part of the Missouri Compromise, but uh, they were not pleased about the Missouri Compromise expanding slavery, with several Maine delegates actually voting against their own independence and statehood in a bid to prevent slavery from expanding. 
The freezing summer of 1816 also led to something called Ohio Fever. Basically, cold, terrible conditions in New England led to a mass exodus of New Englanders to the Midwest by promises of land and fertile soil, and honestly, not freezing to death. Although, why anyone would ever want to go to Ohio is beyond me. And I'm sure they were extremely disappointed when they got there when they found out they could also freeze to death in Ohio, because Ohio is, well, awful. So let's just summarize what we just discussed in the last 36 minutes. So we have the largest volcanic eruption in recorded history in April of 1815, which initially killed somewhere about 100,000 people, give or take, including famines and disease, in the immediate aftermath of the eruption. Then we have a disruption of monsoon season. We have uh, destruction of crops in China. We have frost and freezing in Taiwan, and we have some minor famines in Japan. So figure that into another, oh, 200,000, 300,000 people. So then you take into consideration the cholera pandemics, which the first one is estimated to have killed about 1.5 million people, and there were seven total. So it's about probably 7 million people with a very conservative estimate. And it's not entirely proven that Mount Tambor is what led to the outbreak of the Asiatic cholera uh, bacteria, but it seems fairly likely. So I'm just going to add it because, I mean, you've got all of this situation and it comes out immediately after the eruption. It seems highly likely that it was at least in part triggered by the Mount Tambor eruption. So you're probably sitting at about 8 million deaths at this point just in Asia. Then you move to Europe and you've got the aftermath of the wars. You already have food shortages. You compound those food shortages throughout Europe. United Kingdom, Ireland, France, Germany, uh, Switzerland suffered heavily because basically nothing thawed in Switzerland during the summer of 1816. It was basically frozen the entire time. They had a massive dam that was uh, created at the base of a mountain that in 1819 eventually thawed enough that it broke, created a giant flood, and killed about 60 people. So you're looking at probably another 100, 200,000 deaths there. So you're sitting at, at what, 8.2 million people. Then you go to North America, and you've got, there's really no death toll estimate in North America, but you figure another 50,000 people. So just by my math and just kind of some educated guesstimate, you're probably looking in, in the ballpark of 8.5 million people that died from effects from one eruption in Indonesia. That is truly an insane worldwide event from one single event in one corner of the world. It is without a doubt that the summer of 1816 had a truly massive impact around the globe that we really haven't fully discovered how it impacted everything that happened. It led to civil unrest and riots and millions of deaths and had a profound impact on the growth of humanity and culture for years to come. It's likely that several of the revolutions that happened in Europe in the years after 1816 were partially inspired by the troubles that people went through during that summer of 1816, the starvation they had during the summer of 1816. That is crazy to think about, that the revolutions of 1848 could have 
been started in 1816. The people starved while they watched people that had money and had the ability to get food watch them starve. It's crazy to think about how far this single eruption changed the course of human history. I really truly don't think we have fully grasped how big an event this was and how much it truly shaped the world we know today. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it and learned something. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, history spelled H-S-T-R-Y. You can follow me on Instagram, Disastrous History, spelled correctly. Uh, you can follow me on TikTok, where I do some videos on some smaller uh, disasters and some other kind of fire-related stuff. It's also Disastrous History. If you want to email me and let me know how I'm doing, it's disastroushistory at gmail.com. You can also find me on Patreon, which I didn't mention this at the beginning of the episode, but it's patreon.com slash history. if you want to get the episodes early, you want to get some smaller episodes about some uh, lesser-known disasters or some smaller disasters. They won't be, like, full-length 40-minute episodes like these are. They'll be, you know, 10, 15 minutes about some smaller topics, and I'll talk about, probably we'll talk about Twister, the movie, at some point, so... Yeah, um, I appreciate you guys. Thank you guys for listening. As always, stay safe, and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.